The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. It was a rainy December in Boston, 2001. Christopher Trecco was sitting in his cramped office inside the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Department of Economics. He was 23 and the department's system administrator. But Christopher had a secret. Right now, he wasn't doing any work for MIT. He was logged onto Internet Relay Chat, or IRC, where he went by the name Big Rare. Christopher was a member of Drink or Die. It was a loose collection of software pirates as well as a hangout spot. Christopher was Drink or Die's systems admin, too. From inside MIT's economics department, Christopher helped Drink or Die run its day-to-day -day operations, moderated its IRC channel, and ran its website. Of course, there were also fringe benefits, like access to the latest movies, video games, and software. Most of all, there was camaraderie, even friendship. Christopher and his friends weren't out to make money. They were computer nerds who enjoyed a programming challenge. They were his tribe. Christopher fired off a message to a friend, Bandito, who had contacts with several other wares groups. Hey, Bandito. Do you know anyone that has the copy of the new Lord of the Rings movie? It comes out next week, but I don't want to wait. Let me check. A few seconds later, Bandito sent Christopher a link to an FTP site, where there was a link to the movie. Score! Christopher began the download. Even with MIT's high-speed broadband, it would take several minutes. He sat back and watched the progress bar fill. But then, the progress bar stalled and the download stopped. Christopher paused and restarted, but it wasn't responding. Then he checked his web browser and discovered his internet connection had been cut. God damn it. Christopher hauled himself up and headed for the server room down the hall where he would reset the router for the millionth time. For a university with the latest and high-speed internet, MIT's broadband was surprisingly spotty. When Christopher entered the hallway, he was surprised to find a middle-aged man in a winter coat waiting for him already holding a badge. Mr. Tresco, I'm Special Agent Alan Duty. I'm with the U.S. Customs Department. Agent... Duty? Is that your real name? Yes, and I suggest you get over it quickly. Would you come with me, please? Agent Duty wasn't really asking. Christopher followed him around the corner. There, about 20 federal agents and campus police officers were ransacking the economics department and its computers. The head of the economics department stood watching, dumbfounded. They looked over at Chris, but Chris averted his eyes. Agent Duty brought him into a conference room. It was mostly filled. There was James D. Bruce, a university vice president and head of the information systems department. Not Christopher's boss, more like his boss's boss's boss. Alongside him were several other information service department members and a university lawyer and they didn't look happy. Christopher, you're going to tell Agent Duty everything you know. Understood? Christopher withered under Vice President Bruce's glare, then offered a weak nod. Have a seat, Agent Duty said. They all did. Christopher, before we begin, you need to know that you could be in serious trouble. If you cooperate with us, we can make this go a lot easier for you. W what's this about? Are you a member of any software piracy groups? Christopher froze. They were here because of that? Because of drink or die? They were small time, barely more than a few dozen people. 
They didn't even profit from their activities. Why did the feds care about them? What we really want is the personal details about the leaders of Drink or Die. Christopher swallowed. Christopher was just starting his adult life. He'd never been in trouble before. A criminal conviction could derail his future. What was he going to do? He wished he could warn his friends before they met the same fate. Christopher didn't know it, but it was already too late. He was just one suspect in the biggest software piracy bust of all time. On this episode, Wares Groups, Undercover Cops, and the War on Software Piracy. I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of Operation Buccaneer. Hey listeners, before we get started, I wanted to ask you for a favor. If you could rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, or rate us five stars on Spotify, we'd greatly appreciate it. Also, if you're looking for other ways to support the show, consider becoming a patron on Patreon or a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll be ensuring that this show stays going. And if wearing t-shirts or comfy hoodies is your game, check out our merch store. You can find that link in the show notes or on modemmischief.com. We appreciate your support and your continued listenership. And now, on with the show. On August 24th, 1995, Bill Gates was waiting backstage on Microsoft's campus in Redmond, Washington. The temporary stage had been built to house 12,500 journalists and Microsoft employees. Thousands more watched via satellite from 42 countries around the world. Today, they were about to witness the most important event in the company's history, the unveiling of Windows 95. Since March of 1992, Gates and his team of software developers had labored to make this happen. Most had sacrificed their personal lives, their health, and their hygiene. Many slept in the office. One software developer liked doing backflips to blow off steam. One day he broke his neck, but still returned to the office a week later to fix bugs. The company had spent $300 million just to advertise Windows 95. Gates was betting Microsoft's future on the operating system, and his own. Gates watched Jay Leno take the stage. The 45-year-old gangly comedian had been the host of The Tonight Show for three years now, and he certainly hadn't come cheap. Leno made the requisite jokes about the O.J. Simpson trial, the Whitewater scandal, and Microsoft's recent antitrust lawsuit from the Justice Department. Let's welcome the chairman of Microsoft. Listen to this. This is a man, a man so successful, his chauffeur is Ross Perot, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Bill Gates and the Bill Gates Dancers! Gates walked stiffly onto the stage. Just shy of his 40th birthday, he was clad in a blue polo shirt tucked into pleated khakis. Gates winced from the constant glare of hundreds of camera flashes. The photographers would keep shooting like this for the entire presentation. It was already giving him a headache. He swallowed and began his presentation. In contrast with Leno's jokesy style, Gates offered an earnest sales pitch. He emphasized that Windows makes computing faster, easier, and more fun. Then, he and Leno traded some barbs. I'm kind of a computer virgin here, Bill. 
As we go through this, I hope you'll be gentle. I hope you'll be kind. Over the next hour, the late-night talk show host and the computer genius demonstrated Windows 95 and how it worked, with the help of several of Microsoft's top engineers. To close out their presentation, Microsoft had one more surprise, a featurette highlighting Windows 95's Start button using the Rolling Stones' Start Me Up. That alone cost three million bucks. On stage, Gates attempted to dance along to the Stones, but he struggled to keep up with the rhythm. As he danced, he thought about everything that was riding on Windows 95. They needed to sell tens of millions of copies just to break even. And it certainly didn't help that Windows 95 was already available online for free. In early August, a hacking group calling itself Drink or Die had published a free-to-download version of Windows 95. Already, thousands of potential customers had stolen the software. Countless others were probably sifting through Windows 95's source code, looking for weaknesses that Gates engineers hadn't discovered yet. Gates finished dancing, walked off stage with Leno, and mingled with the crowd. But he couldn't enjoy the triumph. All he thought about was making drink or die pay. Easier said than done, at least in 1995. You see, software piracy's been a problem for publishers since the 1970s. Gates knew this both because he was a software publisher and because he was a former hacker. It was why Gates had founded the Business Software Alliance in 1988. Along with the other major software special interest group, the Software Publishers Association, the BSA represented Gates' interests in Washington. Software piracy started in the United States. In its earliest days, the software piracy scene, also called the wares scene, or just the scene, was mostly limited to highly skilled computer users at companies and universities, people who could sift through software code to find vulnerabilities in its copyright protection, then exploit those to crack the software and make it free to use. They started with computer games, then graduated to software. Later, they learned how to crack music, movies, and video games. Early on, they mainly communicated through BBS message boards, the precursor to the internet. Later, they graduated to Internet Relay Chats, or IRCs. They spoke in Leetspeak, or online slang that marked who was in the know and who wasn't. As personal computers became more and more available, more and more people became interested in wares trading. Soon, groups became international. They organized themselves into loose hierarchies. Groups had leaders who managed the site's operations and vetted new applicants. Then there were the crackers, who specialized in removing copyright restrictions. This was the most valuable skill, and not everywhere's group had a cracker. Below them were couriers who transferred the cracked software to the masses. Below them were the traders, or members of the community who swapped software with others. You didn't want to be a lurker who just hung out on forums and BBSs, or a leecher who just downloaded the software without sharing any of their own. You most definitely didn't want to be a lamer, or their word for outsider. Most of the women and men who made up the wear scene didn't do it to make money. Many didn't even use the programs they stole, just downloaded them onto their hard drive and forgot about them. For wares groups, cracking and amassing software was like trophy hunting. They wanted the most exclusive and proprietary software available, and they wanted it faster than anyone else. Soon, groups became private, and rivalries developed between them. Most of all, the wares scene was about community. 
dozens of wares traders have said that the scene helped them form some of the strongest friendships of their lives. Believe it or not, the Internet's always had a way of bringing people together. Well, until now. But software publishers didn't find the wares scene amusing or endearing. To them, it was an existential threat. They claim the software industry lost $4 billion a year to piracy. This number is disputed. After all, since most people in the wares scene didn't use the software they stole, it's not like they would have bought a copy if piracy weren't available to them. Problem was, in the U.S., no laws existed that specifically outlawed software piracy. The feds learned this the hard way when they tried to prosecute David LaMaccia. In 1994, Maccia was a junior at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Like Christopher Tresco would seven years later, LaMaccia used university computers to set up a wares group. His was called Sinosure, and he posted under the aliases Grimjack and John Gaunt. Altogether, his collection included hundreds of megabytes of stolen software programs, like The Sims 2000, Microsoft Excel 5.0, and WordPerfect 6.0. It was estimated to be worth more than $1 million. The Boston U.S. attorney called it the biggest case of software theft in history. And yet, the judge threw out the case. LaMaccia hadn't actually profited from hosting Sinosure. Simply stealing the software wasn't a crime. The Windows 95 leak changed that. After an extensive lobbying campaign from the BSA and the SPA, Congress passed the No Electronic Theft Act of 1997, which made it illegal to steal copyrighted software. A year later, it passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, which made it illegal to bypass copyright restrictions. Now, the Justice Department had powerful new weapons in the fight against software piracy. But most wares traders were barely aware of these developments. Most assumed that since they weren't making money, the government wouldn't actually care about them. On top of that, so far the United States was the only country to outlaw software piracy. Non-American wares scene members figured they were safe, like the members of Drink or Die. Drink or Die was one of the older wares groups on the scene. It was founded in 1993 in Moscow by a Russian hacker who went by the aliases Deviator and Jimmy James. DoD's first successful crack came in May of 1993, when it uploaded a free version of PC Board 15.0, a professional bulletin board software. It followed that up by releasing a full version of Microsoft Windows 95 in August of 1995, weeks before Microsoft made it available to the public. The score made Drink or Die one of the most respected wares groups on the scene, rivaling groups with names like Pirates with Attitudes, Razor 1911, or The Rogue Warriors. Deviator left Drink or Die in 1997. By then, it had become an international operation with about 65 members in 12 countries, including the US, UK, Australia, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Most were in their 20s and 30s, and many had jobs in the tech industry. Drink or Die had two leaders who shared responsibilities. One was John Sankis Jr. In 1997, he was 23 years old and still lived with his parents outside of Philadelphia. John was a soft-spoken, gentle giant type. By day, he worked as a technician at a store that sold gateway computers. That was also where he managed Drink or Die and its members, directing them on which files to crack and upload to the site. Online, he went by the handle eRifle, or Hellfire Backwards. 
The other co-leader was Hugh Griffiths. Born in England and raised in Australia, he was 34 and lived with his elderly father in Australia's Central Coast region. He had no job and lived on disability. On Drink or Die, he went by the handle Bandito. Bandito started off as a trader, working his way up the group's leadership. Of everyone in Drink or Die, Bandito was probably the most plugged into the lifestyle. He was part of the leadership of another group, and he had contacts across the wear scene. He would spend 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, on DoD's message boards and its FTP site, along with all the other wares groups, and he loved every minute of it. Neither E-Rifle nor Bandito had any coding experience. They weren't crackers, they were managers. Bandito didn't even keep cracked wares on his computers. Cracking was a job for Booge, or Sabooj Pataniak. Originally from Nashville, he was a college student at Duke University. He was both DoD's top cracker as well as one of the 12 people on his advisory committee. Booge had gotten into cracking for a simple reason. He wanted to break down barriers. As he put it, Technology is to be used for the good of all, not some fat-ass company man who doesn't know the first thing from a rare to an ISO. But Booge also had to admit it. The gravy was awfully good. In addition to the crackers, there were the suppliers like Barry Erickson. He was in his early 30s and a systems engineer for Symantec, a cybersecurity company that sold the Norton line of products. Erickson went by the handle Radsol. His main contribution was providing unrestricted versions of the software made by his company. Finally, there were the rank-and-file members of Drink or Die, who didn't provide any software, but instead offered services. Many were college students who took advantage of their university's ultra-fast Wi-Fi to help run the site, like Christopher Tresco, who ran Drink or Die's website from MIT. And yes, this software piracy group also had a website. Another was Mike Nguyen, a.k.a. Hackrat. He helped run the site's FTP servers from UCLA. Since August of 1995, Drink or Die had several more successes, but nothing rivaled the Windows 95 hack. Mostly, they focused on cracking proprietary software sold by small companies. In one case, they cracked the distributed engineering software made by Vold Solutions, an eight-person company based in Cincinnati. That software retailed for $9,500. Bandito, E-Rifle, and Booge probably would have continued doing just that. But in early May of 2000, everything changed. It was the middle of the night, and Bandito was on the computer in his bedroom at his dad's place on Australia's central coast, like he was every night. A chat window popped up. It was his co-leader, E-Rifle. Hey, Bandito. Have you heard anything from your friends at PWA? PWA stood for Pirates with Attitudes. They were one of the top wares groups on the scene and one of DoD's main rivals. They didn't make money off their software cracking, yet they had more resources than almost any other group. Every year, the PWA member who brought in the most software would be gifted a new computer. Bandito knew several members of PWA, but he hadn't spoken to them since January. No. Why? Check your email. Bandito did. There was a busted list, a periodic scene-wide announcement that informed the wares community who'd been caught by law enforcement. Usually it was just one or two people at a time, but this one had 17 names on it, and all of them were members of PWA. Bandito was in no mood to gloat. He knew what this meant. 
law enforcement operations against software pirates were getting bigger and more sophisticated. You don't think we could get busted, do you? Well, I don't have any wares on my computer. Plus, I'm not in the US, and it's not illegal here in Oz, so I should be safe. Bandito hoped that was true. In September 2000, U.S. Customs Special Agent in Charge Alan J. Duty walked into a crowded conference room inside the Baltimore Field Operations Office, a stately red brick federal building that sits on Baltimore's harbor. It was full of men and women in business suits, all career law enforcement professionals from three different agencies. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to everyone who drove in from D.C. and Virginia. Special Agent Duty was 45, tanned, and fit, like me, <laughs> and kind of resembled a young James Gardner. Yup, exactly like me. <laughs> He'd started out as a customs inspector at LAX in the late 1980s. Recently, his office had busted several marijuana smuggling rings, child pornographers, and would-be industrial spies. He wasn't much of a computer person, he preferred motorcycling and golf. But since cybercrime and intellectual property theft fell under the custom agency's remit, he was on the case. As you know, special interest groups have been lobbying Attorney General Ashcroft to crack down on cybercrime. DOJ had its first big win a few months ago with the operation to take down pirates with attitudes. But that was easy compared to with what we're about to do. Duty picked up a dry erase marker and wrote on the whiteboard, Operation Buccaneer. This is our target. Below Operation Buccaneer, he wrote, drink or die. Some of the agents shared looks. Most of you know them as the folks who leaked Windows 95. We believe they're one of the oldest and most active groups on the wares scene. This wasn't actually true, but Agent Duty didn't know that. We believe they're much bigger and more spread out than Pirates with Attitudes were which is why we have so many agencies involved. He looked out over the crowd of agents. Some were from Customs, some from the FBI, and some from the Justice Department. Cooperation between them would be key. Special Agent Duty would be acting as manager and mediator as much as he would be an investigator. On top of that, if his hunch was right, Drink or Die members would be more international. Pirates with Attitudes members were mostly from the U.S., with a few from Canada and one from Belgium. Drink or Die members, on the other hand, might be found in more than a dozen countries, and they might be operating in a dozen more. But Operation Buccaneer isn't the only game in town, folks. DOJ has two other investigations that are happening concurrently with ours, one in Boston and one in Nevada. He also knew what it meant. It was inevitable that these three investigations would get competitive, but they also needed to work together. Your team leaders will brief you on the rest. Cudney, come with me for a minute. The rest of you, get to it. Special Agent James Cudney nodded. He was in his mid-30s, slim, and wore glasses. As the meeting filed out, Duty and Cudney walked towards Duty's office. What's your experience level with these groups? I've been studying them since the NET Act, but haven't actually infiltrated one before. They entered the office and sat down. What are you going to need? Well, high-speed modem and broadband, obviously. I'm also probably going to need some wares to offer. I'll reach out to the software special interest groups and see if they can help us with that. What else? Well, it's just going to take time. 
These people don't trust outsiders, especially now that pirates with attitudes got busted. Well, you'll just have to be creative. In that moment, Special Agent Cudney came up with his wares trader handle. Be creative. Spelled with an 8 and no E on the end, he wrote it down on a legal pad. Over the next several weeks, Cudney got set up in the Baltimore field office. The Business Software Alliance and the Software Publishers Association gave Cudney some proprietary software that would allow him to ingratiate himself with Drink or Die's leadership. We don't actually know what he offered. That's classified. So if anyone wants to hack the U.S. government to get more information, we'll update this episode. And to be clear, we're not actually asking anyone to actively hack the U.S. government. But if you do see this information, let us know. As the kids say, our DMs are open. Based on interviews with Pirates with Attitudes members who had been arrested months earlier, Cudney had two options. He could pass off the software as something he cracked himself, making him a cracker, or he could just claim to work for the company that made the software, making him a supplier. Knowing how in-demand crackers were, and doubting his own cracking abilities, Cudney went with the second option. So, Cudney sketched out a vague biography for his ware supplier cover story. Then, as Be Creative, he made his way onto the Public Drink or Die IRC channel. He introduced himself as a low-level employee at a software company in San Francisco who happened to have access to some proprietary wares, which he then uploaded onto the group's FTP site. That was enough to convince Drink or Die's leadership, including Bandito, that Drink or Die wasn't a cop. Cudney started out small. He volunteered to do the grunt work necessary to keep the site running. He worked as a trader, scanning wares news groups and posting requests for more wares, like JavaScript applications or Photoshop plugins, nothing that the Drink or Die members would ever actually use. While Cudney labored, he also created several other dummy IRC accounts and reached out to the group. Sometimes he would pose as a newbie who'd get rebuffed. Other times he'd pose as a leecher. Sometimes he'd just act like a lamer. All of this was a smokescreen designed to distract attention away from Be Creative. Slowly, he gained their trust and was given more responsibility. Eventually, he got access to the group's FTP server. This allowed him to record their locations. But most of all, he was just their friend, someone to lean on, listen to their personal troubles, their anxieties about getting caught by law enforcement, or just shit-talking other members. Cudney did this for months, and months, and months. Fall 2000 turned into spring 2001, and then summer. And the deeper he dug, the more he found. As Cudney gained the Drink or Die members' trust, he learned just how tangled the Wares community was. Wares seamsters belonged to multiple groups at a time. Bandito co-ran Drink or Die, was on the council of another group called Risk, and was a member of a third group called Razor 1911. Other Drink or Die members had affiliations with groups like Request to Send, The Shadow Realm, We Love Wares, or Pops. These groups tended to specialize in different media. Razor 1911, for example, was founded in Norway in 1992 and specialized in cracking and distributing video games like Quake, Red Alert, Terminal Velocity, and Warcraft 2 and 3. As Be Creative, Cudney and the Drink or Die members swapped tales of wares heist and bragged about their personal software collections, all of it obtained from different groups, using different FTP sites. When Cudney updated Special Agent Duty, Duty knew that his hunch had been right. 
this investigation was indeed getting more and more complicated. Operation Buccaneer was expanding, as were the two other federal investigations in Boston and Nevada. The Boston investigation was called Operation Digital Pirates, with a Z on the end, named after a hacker group that it was infiltrating. The Nevada investigation, Operation Bandwidth, was even more elaborate. There, undercover agents set up an actual wares site and lured wares traders onto it, entrapping them into incriminating themselves. Special Agent Duty had his hands full running Operation Buccaneer and coordinating with Boston and Nevada. On top of that, Duty and his team were cooperating with agencies in Canada, the UK, Australia, Finland, Norway, and Sweden, all of which started their own investigations. And then a little thing called 9-11 happened. After 9-11, if you were a federal law enforcement officer in Washington, D.C., you most likely got reassigned. In the weeks after the terrorist attacks, Attorney General Ashcroft called for a wartime reorganization of the Justice Department, with agents from all agencies reassigned to cases involving terrorism. On top of that, members of Congress were receiving suspected anthrax in the mail. Special Agent Duty started with 80 customs investigations working on Buccaneer. Now, dozens of customs agents were leaving to become air marshals to investigate laundering for terrorism or to follow up leads for the FBI. Duty didn't have enough resources for Operation Buccaneer. The situation was dire enough that he went on the record with the Baltimore Sun to complain about it, but it did no good. Suddenly, an investigation into software priority wasn't a priority. At best, Agent Duty felt like number two. He had to make do with what he had. As summer turned into fall and fall turned into winter, a date was set for the culmination of Operation Buccaneer, December 11, 2001. Like any multinational bust of an online criminal gang, timing was everything. People had to grab their targets before they could fire off a message warning other members that they'd been busted, and thus delete any sensitive information that might be used as evidence. For Operation Buccaneer, this meant serving 70 search warrants in six countries, all coordinated down to the minute. Operation Buccaneer also had to coordinate with the other two investigations in Nevada and Boston, which would also be executing their search warrants. Special Agent Duty prayed that luck was on their side. Do you want toast with your eggs? No. Dad, you need to eat. Bandito's father, Neil, was in his late 70s and nearly blind. He depended on Bandito for nearly everything. Bandito popped some bread into the toaster. He was preoccupied, as he always was, with running drink or die. It consumed most of his life. He thought about today's pressing tasks, as usual. They needed to find more crackers if they wanted to keep up with groups like Razor 1911 and Risk. There was also a member he was considering blackballing. He didn't care if he was 14 years old or not. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. I'll see who it is. When Bandito opened it, there were several officers from the Australian Federal Police. Good morning, Mr. Griffiths. We're investigating a case of software piracy. But that's not illegal. May we come in? What's going on? What have you done, Hugh? Not now, Dad. Just wait in your room while I handle this. It's my house. I deserve to know why the police are in my... Bandito returned to the officers. As we're sure you're aware, we're investigating you for involvement in the Drink or Die Software Piracy Group. 
Am I under arrest? Not yet, but this entitles us to confiscate any computer equipment in the house. The officer produced a search warrant. Bandito gritted his teeth and showed them into his room, where they dismantled his PC and boxed it away. We'd advise you not to flee the area. You'll be hearing from us soon. Bandito watched the cops drive away with his computer. He was cut off from the internet, from his friends on Drink or Die, practically from the outside world. Are you gonna tell me what the hell's going on? Bandito looked at Neil, who was now standing by his side. The gravity of the situation hit him. What if he got arrested? What if he went to jail? Was that even possible? Bandito was Neil's primary caregiver. They didn't have family or close friends who could help. They didn't have the money to hire someone. What would Neil do without him? Bandito couldn't run for it. He'd never leave Neil. And where would he even go? All he could do was wait for the hammer to come down. In August 2003, Anthony Townsend was escorted through the Silverwater Correctional Facility, 13 miles west of downtown Sydney. The balding, middle-aged Legal Aid Commission lawyer, Australia's version of a public defender, was here to see one of his many clients. Silverwater could be a rough place, he knew. Finally, Townsend arrived in the visiting area, where Hugh Griffiths, a.k.a. Bandito, was waiting. Hello, Hugh. Good to see you again. Bandito had only been there a few weeks, but he looked terrible. He'd been roughed up a few times already. This was a guy who sat in a chair all day. On top of that, he'd been severely depressed for months. Poor bastard. I'm making progress on your bail arrangements. Bandito winced. He and his father would have to scrape the money together for that somehow. Good, but what about my case? Can I just pay a fine and be done with this? Well, if this were an Australian case, you probably could. But this is an American case. But that's ridiculous. Why would Australia play ball? Software piracy isn't even illegal here. We're making that argument, Hugh. But the Americans are saying that your wares group stole $50 million in software. Look, am I going to be extradited or not? Townsend looked him in the eye and told him the truth. I just don't know. After eight weeks, Bandito was released on bail. He was allowed to return to his father's house. In those eight weeks, some of the neighbors had agreed to look in on Neil from time to time, but there was no replacing Bandito's care. Bandito and Neil dreaded that his return home was just a temporary reprieve for what was to come. Since the worldwide raids in December of 2001 that culminated in Operation Buccaneer, as well as two other federal investigations in Boston and Nevada, Bandito and Neil had watched the developments in the U.S. closely. Around the world, federal agents had approached the members of Drink or Die just like they had approached Bandito. Christopher Tresco was approached at MIT's economics department. Sabuj Padanyak's dorm room at Duke was raided, as was Mike Nugian's at UCLA. They busted Barry Erickson at his office at Symantec and John Sankis at his gateway store in Philadelphia. Others busted college students at the Rochester Institute of Technology and the University of Twente in the Netherlands. The agents confiscated all the computer equipment they could get their hands on. Altogether, they harvested 150 computers containing more than 50 terabytes of data. It would take months just to sift through. But fortunately for the feds, and unfortunately for the group, two of its members decided to flip. Under the pressure from the cops, Mike Nugian, the UCLA student who ran Drink or Die's FTP site, agreed to cooperate with the police 
along with his friend and fellow Drinker Die member, Kentaga Cardenita of Los Angeles. With the duo's testimonies, along with that of Special Agent James Cudney, aka Be Creative, the cases progress swiftly. Beginning in January 2022 and continuing until August, prosecutors handed down indictments against 17 American members of Drink or Die. Many pleaded guilty and received between two and four years in prison. Many others have been arrested and prosecuted in the UK, Sweden, Germany, and Norway. Altogether, Operation Buccaneer targeted 62 people in six countries. Then there were the other two investigations. Operation Bandwidth in Nevada added 30 more arrests to the tally, and Operation Digital Pirates in Boston added another nine. By all accounts, the crackdown was a success, and the many prosecutions would hopefully serve as an example to other software pirates. In every other case involving Operation Buccaneer and the software piracy crackdown, every suspect was prosecuted in their home country, except for one, Banditos. Without his computer, Bandito was indeed cut off from the habit that had consumed so much of his life. He enjoyed mountain biking and mowing the lawn, but he struggled to fill the void. He became severely depressed. After Bandito was released from prison in the fall of 2003, his legal case dragged on in the courts. Since Bandito was the co-leader of Drink or Die, the United States wanted to make an example of him. It requested that Bandito be extradited to the United States to face trial. Australia was receptive to the idea. In the months after 9-11, the Bush administration, needing allies in the newly launched War on Terror, reached out to the Australian Prime Minister John Howard and pledged to cooperate in the fight on terrorism. But this arrangement also included cooperating on various other law enforcement issues, including software piracy and copyright infringement. Further complicating matters, Bandito technically didn't have Australian citizenship. He and Neil moved there from the UK when Bandito was seven. He didn't even own an Australian passport. Bandito's lawyer, Anthony Townsend, argued that he shouldn't be extradited to the US because what Bandito did wasn't illegal in Australia. In March 2004, the court agreed with him. But the United States appealed the decision, and in July, Bandito was arrested once again, this time without bail. Bandito was held in an Australian prison until February 2007, totaling three years, all of it away from Neil. Then, Australia finally agreed to send Bandito to the US to face a trial. Bandito pleaded guilty to his two counts of copyright infringement. He was sentenced to 51 months. With time already served, that meant Bandito spent another 15 months in an American prison until 2008. Altogether, Bandito was apart from his elderly, nearly blind father Neil for more than four years. Bandito's arrest, along with all other members of Drink or Die, was supposed to serve as an example to other pirates on the wares scene. The group had been decimated. But software piracy wasn't going anywhere, and the war on software piracy wasn't either. Under the George W. Bush administration, the crackdown on software piracy continued, with operations both big and small. In 2004, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, and the Department of Justice's Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section launched Operation Digital Gridlock, which targeted the four leaders of the Wares Group, Silent Echoes, who traded in movies, computer software, computer games, and music. In 2005, the FBI launched Operation Sightdown, 
It was a series of undercover operations from Chicago, Charlotte, and San Jose branches of the FBI to dismantle more wares groups, leading to 40 convictions. This included 19 members of the group Risk ISO, who stole 19 terabytes worth of movies and software worth $6.5 million. That same year, the FBI and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency launched Operation D-Elite. This resulted in the arrest of three members who ran the BitTorrent site Elite Torrents, which leaked a copy of Star Wars Episode III Revenge of the Sith. And hey, releasing that movie in the first place should itself be a crime. Copyright infringement or not. hey oh. One year later, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and Interpol carried out Operation Fastlink. This was a massive investigation that targeted wares group like Fairlight, Callisto, Echelon, Class, and Deviance. Altogether, it executed 120 search warrants in 27 states and 10 countries, resulting in 60 convictions. It also confiscated $50 million worth of illegally copied software, games, movies, and music. All of these operations were clear wins for the American and international law enforcement agencies. But all of these prosecutions cost millions of dollars. On top of that, software companies have spent billions of dollars trying to protect themselves from software piracy. As one expert put it, Every dollar spent on security is a dollar not spent on software development. All of which begs the question, did these operations stop software piracy? Yes and no. Individual groups were decimated, and the wares scene is a shadow of what it once was. But piracy continues to be a major loss of revenue for software and media companies. Rather than collect esoteric software that sits unused on their hard drives, today's pirates swap cracked versions of pre-released movies or shows for streaming platforms like Netflix and HBO. That's projected to cost $11.6 billion in 2022. Meanwhile, the music industry still loses $12.5 billion annually to piracy. And in most countries, unlicensed use of software is above 50%. That means more than half of people using software haven't paid for it. Altogether in 2022, the Business Software Alliance, which was founded by Bill Gates, estimated that the software piracy losses total $19.8 billion in lost revenue. In the end, Operation Buccaneer mostly affected the lives of the people who were prosecuted. Even so, given the non-violent nature of their crimes, most of them have gone on to successful careers in the tech industry. Still, most of them say they regret it. Today, Hugh Griffiths, aka Bandito, advises against stealing software. But at least he's allowed to use a computer again. I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support this show is to share it. And another way to support us is on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also receive an ad-free version of the show plus monthly bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. You can also access that in a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluk. This episode is written and researched by Jim Rowley, edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernhard, aka Buccaneer is his preferred pronoun. 
The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at modemmischief. Thanks for listening. 